Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is John Coyle, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We'll be discussing his paper, Cruise Contracts, Public Policy, and Foreign Forum Selection Clauses, which is forthcoming in the University of Miami Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. John, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. John, this is the beginning of summer. The weather is changing. The world is opening up a little bit after the COVID-19 pandemic, which was marked in its early days by images of cruise ships that were at peril due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But we're starting to get back to a point where cruises will start selling again from ports in Miami and other areas. So let's say that I want to take a cruise this summer, or some of our listeners want to take a cruise. Uh, If I do, how do the terms of my ticket affect my rights If something, God forbid, should go wrong on the cruise, I should get hurt. Again, I should emphasize that millions of people go on cruises every year and nothing bad happens. So this doesn't come up a lot, but it comes up, you know, a fair amount, which is people are injured on a cruise. There's a slip and fall, there's an accident in the swimming pool, a dolphin pokes them in the eye where they're swimming with dolphins, all kinds of crazy things happen on cruises. And let's say you have suffered severe enough injuries that you want to bring a lawsuit against the cruise company to recover some damages. The first place you're going to look to try and figure out what you can and can't do is the form ticket that was emailed to you when you bought your ticket to go on the cruise. And the terms of this ticket will essentially affect your rights and will control a lot of aspects of any lawsuit you may want to bring as against the cruise company. It sounds like the cruise company has a lot of leeway in the terms that it imposes on the ticket. If I want to go on the cruise, I have to accept those terms. It's a classic contract of adhesion. Are there any limits to the terms that the cruise ship company can impose on me? There are. So the federal government, Congress, many years ago, recognized the exact point that you made, that these are the classic contracts of adhesion, that the passengers are really in no position to bargain with the cruise companies about the terms of these tickets. And so Congress passed a federal statute that basically tells the cruise companies there are certain things you can't do, certain terms you cannot write into your cruise ship tickets. And one of them is a term that basically says, even if we're at fault, even if you suffer an injury, you can't recover more than X number of dollars in damages. So if the cruise companies were to sort of book you on a cruise and in your contract, they were to say, oh, and by the way, our liability was capped at, say, $100,000, that liability cap, that provision in your contract would be void under federal law. And the cruise companies cannot use essentially the, uh, the contract writing process to cap their liability to their passengers when the cruise companies have been negligent and when the ship is going to or from a U.S. port. Your paper addresses an attempt by cruise carriers to get around this provision that Congress has put in place to protect cruise goers. The mechanism that cruise carriers have come up with is to get around this section 3509 through the use of choice of law and choice of forum clauses. Before we get into how that works, could you maybe introduce more generally what these clauses are and how they work? And are there any limits on their use or enforcement of these provisions? A form selection clause is a contract provision that basically requires you to sue the other party 
in the court named in the clause. So for example, in most uh, cruise companies involving tickets issued to US passengers, they require the passengers to sue the cruise companies in Miami, Florida, which is where they have to go, they want to bring their lawsuit. So if you're a resident of North Carolina, you go go down on a cruise, when you're injured, you usually can't sue the cruise company in North Carolina, you have to sue them in Miami, because there's a form selection clause in your contract that basically says, sorry, you got to be in Miami. Adjacent to the form selection clause, there is usually something called a choice of law clause. Uh, A choice of law clause basically selects the law that will apply in your lawsuit as against the cruise company. So in the U.S., um, that law is usually federal admiralty law. However, if you are a foreign passenger, say you're coming from England, you may have a choice of law clause selecting um, English law, at which point your lawsuit as against the cruise company will be governed by the law of England, not necessarily by the law of the United States. So what these are, these provisions are basically, they're preemptive strikes by the cruise companies um, against their passengers that are trying to make it simultaneously perhaps a little bit less convenient for their passengers to sue them in the court they want to sue them in. They have to travel all the way to Florida to bring these lawsuits. And also when it comes to the choice of law, there are ways of controlling the law that will be applied. And as I said, in the US, federal admiralty law will usually govern these types of cases. And federal admiralty law, I think it's fair to say, is broadly fairly favorable to the cruise companies at the expense of the passengers. So these are both techniques the cruise companies use to mitigate the likelihood they'll be exposed to um, serious damages awards in the event something does go horribly wrong on one of these cruises. With that general view in mind, let's look at this specific context that you talk about in the paper. How exactly do cruise companies use choice of law and choice of forum provisions to evade Section 3509? Could you walk me through how that works or how they envision it working or how it, it could work? So I should emphasize at the outset, this particular workaround only really works for foreign nationals who come to the United States to um, go on a cruise. Okay, So you've got to have someone from England, someone from Italy, they come to Miami, they get on a cruise ship, they go off into the Caribbean expecting to have a great time, something terrible happens, and they suffer some horrible injury. So what will often happen in these situations is the cruise companies um, will have preemptively in the tickets selected, say, English law and also an English forum selection clause, which means that this English passenger, if they want to sue the cruise company in Miami, Florida, they probably can't do that. Under the terms of the contract and the terms of the ticket, they have to sue them in England and they have to sue them under English law. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem so nefarious. There, there are English subjects, after all. They live in England, so it doesn't seem particularly unfair to require them to sue in England under English law. The wrinkle, though, comes here. There is an international treaty out there called the Athens Convention. The Athens Convention is a, a worldwide system of regulating cruise liners and what happens when bad things happen on cruises. And one of the features of the Athens Convention is that it caps the liability of the cruise line. The original Athens Convention capped their liability at somewhere around $66,000. There is a more recent protocol that caps the liability around, I don't know, $570,000. But the end result is if the Athens Convention applies to your tort suit, you cannot recover more than X number of dollars. And so what happens is when this hypothetical English cruise goer who's injured in the Caribbean tries to sue the American cruise line in Miami, the American cruise line says, sorry, bub, you can't sue us here. We have a forum selection clause requiring you to go to England. Once you get to England, our English choice of law clause um, requires us to apply the Athens Convention. And once we apply the Athens Convention, we are now capping your liability. And we're doing that even though... 
if this case had stayed in the United States, and if the courts in Miami had applied this federal statute saying the cruise companies cannot cap their liability, the outcome in terms of damages in this case may have been very different. So effectively, what the cruise companies have done is they've essentially used the advantages offered by this international treaty, the Athens Convention, and the liability limitations in that, and they've managed to find a way to get the benefit of those for foreign cruise ship passengers in a way that would simply not be allowed if these cases were to stay in U.S. courts. This sounds like some clever lawyering on the part of the cruise companies, but how have American courts generally responded to these provisions? Only U.S. courts that have really grappled with this in any detail, so far as I'm aware, are the courts in Florida and then the Court of Appeals coming out of that, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And effectively, the 11th Circuit has basically said, that sounds great to us. Go with God. This all works for us. And in this paper, I, I really argue that that's just not right. I think that the 11th Circuit giving its blessing to this particular workaround is problematic for a bunch of reasons. But I think probably that the most straightforward reason runs something like this. If the cruise companies wrote into their contracts a provision saying you cannot recover more than $66,000 from us, no matter how negligent we are and how badly injured you were, uh, that would clearly be void under a federal statute. So the writing it into the contract, that provision, it's not going to work. Okay, so you try and get around it by putting a choice of law clause in, selecting the law of a jurisdiction that is, say, ratified the Athens Convention. Okay, maybe if that choice of law clause were enforced, it would result in the same result, a capping of liability, but you would do that via a choice of law clause, which makes it a little bit more indirect. My guess is that most U.S. courts probably would not enforce a choice of law clause in that same scenario because it seems too obvious a workaround. You're getting to the $66,000 cap, but instead of writing a clause directly into the contract, you're getting the exact same outcome via a choice of law clause. However, if you put a form selection clause in there, now it's a little bit more removed from the issue of law. All you're doing is choosing a court. And once you're off in England, okay, yeah, sure, they're going to enforce that choice of law clause. That's going to lead to the Athens Convention being applied. That's going to lead to the liability caps being imposed. But because this is being done through a motion to change your forum, to essentially transfer the case overseas, the 11th Circuit seems to be okay with that in a way that I think it would not be okay with it if it were done more directly and overtly. And it seems, frankly, weird to me that the 11th Circuit is okay with this particular workaround, given the very clear statement of public policy that Congress has put into the U.S. Code, making it very clear how it feels about these types of provisions. You write a lot about choice of forum and choice of law provisions in contract. And I wondered if we could step back a little bit. So this case, the Myra case from the 11th Circuit, an attempt to evade Section 3509. Do you see this case as being a one-off, being a blip? Or do you think it offers any broader teachings for lawyers or for courts regarding how to interpret and apply and enforce choice of forum and choice of law provisions? I think I would say this, that Fights about forum in U.S. law are sometimes, not always, but sometimes are really fights about law. And this is a classic example of a case where exactly that is going. Officially, they're fighting about the forum. Is this going to be in England or is it going to be in Miami? But really, what they really care about is what law is going to apply. Is it going to be English law in the Athens Convention 
or U.S. law and the lack of any liability caps. So one takeaway here, one cool insight, is that they're officially fighting about forum selection clauses, but really they're fighting about the law that's going to govern the underlying suit. So that's one takeaway. It's, hey, look, we're fighting about one thing, but that's not really the thing we care about at all. And that's sort of an interesting takeaway. A second one is that this problem, this issue of what do we do when we have a forum selection clause, selecting a forum somewhere else. And if you enforce the forum selection clause, that will lead to the enforcement of the choice of law clause. And if you enforce the choice of law clause, that leads to the application of a law that the current forum views as really objectionable. Under what scenarios should the courts then refuse to enforce forum selection clauses in the first instance? And here in Myra, the court seems to be okay with doing that, even though on the if you give a mouse a cookie theory of choice of law and forum selection, it will lead to an undesirable outcome, but hey, it's okay. This issue came up here in the context of a cruise ship contract and, and liability limitations. This issue has come up in dozens of other contexts across the United States. It's come up a lot in California and California state cases. It's come up in the context of federal securities laws. It's come up in the context of federal anti-discrimination law. This isn't the first time <laughs> this issue of the interplay between Forum selection, choice of law, and otherwise non-waivable rights has been presented to the U.S. courts. And if there's one criticism that I think can really be fairly levied at the 11th Circuit in this Myra case, is that they don't acknowledge hardly any of it. They pretend or they seem to be operating under the assumption this is the first time any court has ever been asked to decide what to do with the forum selection clause when it may lead to the application of some objectionable law. So again, if I were going back and trying to rewrite Myra, I would say, look, you guys, you need to grapple with these other cases. This is not the first time. And again, I know about this because, as you say, I've spent lots and lots of time thinking about and writing about and researching forum selection clauses. And because I've spent all this time reading all these other cases, I read Myra and I'm scratching my head being like, how are they just not addressing or engaging with this, this other line of everything? And it seemed like they're just not. I think they just weren't briefed on it. And it's obviously a missed opportunity, but... One thing I'm trying to do with this article here is essentially try and fix that by saying, hey, look, you guys may not have gotten the best briefing at the outset, but here are dozens of case examples where the courts have done exactly as I'm suggesting you should do here in the context of cruise contracts in sections 30509. Take the lead, fix this mistake, try and make this better. I guess time will tell if the 11th Circuit decides to, uh, to heed my warnings. We'll see. So apart from the 11th Circuit, which may or may not be listening, or some of their clerks perhaps, or some lawyers in the 11th Circuit, are there any key takeaways that you would like listeners in general to have from this conversation and from this article, perhaps to think about as they're on a cruise this summer or in the coming months? I would strongly encourage all of the listeners not to be thinking about these issues while on a cruise. That seems like a very bad use of your time on a cruise. Read a book, admire the scenery, swim in the pool, do all these things. However, if you are thinking about these issues, I think that one really important just you know takeaway here um, is that choice of law and forum selection are really complicated. They're complicated in ways that the uninitiated can barely even grasp because there are so many cases and there's so many nuances and there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that can be moved in different ways to help achieve certain outcomes for you and your client. And it's really tricky. And again, I'm faulting the 11th Circuit here for not doing as good a job as they should have done. In fairness, they did an okay job. I just think they got to the wrong outcome. And I think their reasoning was not ideal. There are lots of other cases out there that are far worse. Myra is hard. This is a hard case because this case really comes at the intersection of choice of law, contract law, international law, 
and Admiralty, all of which are incredibly rich and detailed subjects. And the intersection of that makes that even harder. So I guess one thing I would encourage any listeners sort of out there enjoying their summer vacations, hopefully uh, going back out into the world post-COVID, is just that when you are dealing with choice of law and form selection clauses and, and things like that, to resist the temptation to look for easy answers or simple solutions, because in many cases, there is going to be a deeper better answer that can actually be more useful as you're trying to solve the problem. And there's lots and lots of good scholarship out there that can help you solve these problems. And if people were ever wondering <laughs> and want um, any help on this, as you can probably tell, I'm nut for um, choice of law and form selection clauses. I think about them all the time. And I'm more than happy to help scholars, practitioners, judges, anybody who has any remote passing interest in this area, at least try and establish the right framework for thinking through the problems that are coming before you as opposed to just blindly citing something you don't quite really understand and saying, we've got it, and let's call it. Our guest today has been John Coyle, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We've discussed his paper, Cruise Contracts, Public Policy, and Foreign Forum Selection Clauses, which is forthcoming in the University of Miami Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. John, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.